Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Now we are recording again. So this is Charlie telling Charlie later (laughs) that this is when the podcast episode starts. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, we are going to talk about alcohol a second time. So we're gonna we're gonna take a second drink, maybe. No, no, no. I just wanted to see what reaction I would get from you. No, guys. no, no. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, the first episode again. We each have some some other items we'd like to add into the conversation. But before we do that, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. I think I'm supposed to go first. So uh, we just went on a trip. I uh, listened, finished listened, listening to Frankenstein. And um, it was interesting. I liked it uh, in a weird way. But uh, the story was very different than modern perceptions of Frankenstein. So I kind of, um, I wanted to get through it. Uh, This creation that uh, Dr. Frankenstein makes, this monster that he then loathes and then seeks to destroy, um, was, uh, uh, it's a very modernistic book. Like science is going to triumph over all. Science can do anything. Science can create anything. So very much set back in the uh, 18th, 19th century, 19th century. Um, and so I uh, I thought that was interesting again, but still how it did not look favorably upon it. So he creates this monster and then uh, loathes the monster, is terrified of the monster, run away, runs away from the monster. And then the monster kills the people that are close to him. And he's trying to kill the monster. Uh, but then the monster has even a sense of morality, which I thought was kind of odd. Um, so how, how uh, the author kind of played with those different ideas, I found interesting. And uh, the story was it kept me guessing. I didn't know how it was going to resolve. So uh, I appreciated the story. I'd put it, put it like a three on the Finkling's Goodness scale. And uh, that's my books and business. Yeah, you know, uh, this is this is our cue because I had I had a a recommendation or a uh, request from a listener that they want more Josh Boyd. Yes. And uh and I am pretty confident that he would be able to discuss Frankenstein uh with us. And so um we we need to we need to try to get him to come and discuss mm-hmm. some more books with us. But anyway, so my book, I have uh you guys can't see it there. Haha. Can you see what's on the cover of that book? Looks like a fox. fox. It is a fox. So is it wearing socks? Sorry, I cannot, sorry. It's inconclusive. Inconclusive. Okay. So I was in Williamsburg yesterday and I stopped in at uh, my good friend Cameron uh, Dietrich's oh. house and his wife Anya. Oh, and this is the moment, Andy. I met I told them. You, 
that the segue would be them. so clear. Yes. So why don't you tell? Do you want me to interrupt you right now or wait until yeah, you go, your go story? for it? And I'll come back to my book. Yeah. So okay. So time recording. Two weeks ago, Robin was having a five day treatment that went over a weekend. So she was in Iowa City from Thursday to Tuesday, and so I had <clears throat> I'd been home for a little bit, but then I came out to the hospital, and that Sunday morning, I thought, man, I'm only a half hour away, Charlie, from your home church. And so I, I got to go to Williamsburg and uh, got to meet the infamous Cameron Dietrich and his wife. Um, but then he came up and it was funny, Cameron, if you're listening, I just want you to know, I really felt like I was meeting a celebrity because Charlie has mentioned you so many times over the years. And I even got a selfie with him and the selfie didn't save, but he actually wanted to introduce his mother-in-law. I'm going to get her, um, Andrea. And Andrea came up and man, Andrea, if you're listening, it was a lovely half hour conversation about all kinds of books. And she is a reader, people. And uh, so Tim, she's really enjoyed your your picks lately, like all your classic stuff. And uh, she's she's repping the Thinklings hardcore down in San Diego. We got a we got a San Diego contingent, everybody. So if you want to move out to San Diego and help her rep the Thinklings, go for it. But anyways, I got to meet Cameron. That was great. And his mother-in-law and Anya. It was wonderful. So I was at Cameron and Anya's yesterday. Wow. And he gave me, oh, I just smacked my microphone. So that was probably a great sound. I couldn't hear it. Oh, <laughs> perfect. It was stealth. So it was a stealth he, smack. Yeah, just a you know the mom hitting the kid in the pew. You never knew it even happened. Um, <laughs> so he he gifted me this book that he received recently, and it is uh, the Fox and the Hound. And oh, uh, so the uh, wow. written material that sourced the Disney movie, and uh, I did start reading it this morning when one of us got his toe stuck in the sheets, to use Andy's <laughs> phrase. And, it wasn't uh, me this time. <laughs> so that my process of elimination. Anyway, uh, so uh, I started reading it this morning, and it is it's obviously going to be much different than the movie version. And uh, so the very first chapter is just the the dog, you know, the fox and the hound. It's from the hound's perspective, and he's going out and tracking with his master, and it's kind of giving you insight into the thoughts of the hound and. I'm I'm really interested to see uh, how how the story develops in the written form. But so uh, that's my short books in business. Uh, Cameron, thank you for the gift, and uh, that he and I think in his words he's like, I hope this is left field worthy. So like uh, a summer in left field book, and I think it is right in the vernacular of a left field book. So, so I'm, gonna, I'm excited to read that. So he hasn't even read it yet. I don't believe he read it. Well, maybe he did. I can't remember. He, when we were chatting, he's he's rather well read. And actually, I have to say, he and his wife has some exquisite tastes and opinions on Lord of the Rings. I'm just going to say that. We had a lovely Lord of the Rings conversation. Yes. And by all rights, so Cameron was much into uh, Tolkien and Lewis and all of that well before I was. Because I was a, a pagan Philistine. And uh, don't tell your friend that, but I, I didn't know. Shout out to George. <laughs> I didn't know about any of this, you know, I, I you know, until I was, you know, I, I got saved when I was 16 and, you know, so, I mean, I hadn't really read anything of worth 
other than what the public school thought was worthy, uh, which interestingly enough, I probably did read Frankenstein uh, in high school. Well, but, she was so, such a philosoph and an enlightenment thinker that I'm, yeah. Anyways, we got to have Boyd on. So I'll bring it, we'll bring it first full circle and then I'll, I'll hand it off to you, Andy. But when you walk into Cameron and Anya's, uh, they have a little four seasons room off of their kitchen living room area at their home. And when you look at the bookshelf that has some of the C.S. Lewis, you will note something about his C.S. Lewis box set. Mm. What do you think oh, you would note about the box set? I already know. He's he's a very he's a man of refined taste and refined sentiment, and he has reordered it in publication order. Yes, he has a box set that has numbered them in chronological order, but when you look at the box <clears> set, <throat> he has reordered them in publication order, which is a great sign of humanity and ethics. Horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> that warms my heart. See, I, th I think I knew that on a subconscious level when I met him like a week and a half ago. Yeah. So, oh, that's good. Yeah. So we'll bring it full circle. I'm, I'm excited to read Fox and the Hound gifted to me. And so this, this would be the second book in books in business that has uh, been gifted to me from Cameron. The first was in the house of Tom Bombadil. Ooh, um, yeah. And we remember we discussed Bombadil uh, a while back. It might've been last summer, in fact. So anyway, yeah, there's my book. I'm excited to read it. Very nice. Well, for my books and business, I'm actually going to make one more comment based on what you just said. So in my classes, I teach at faith in my classes, we do attendance at the beginning. We do it through Bluetooth, this little app where I push a button. And then once I turn the Bluetooth on, the students just get on their phones and they sign into class. And there's a joke in my classes that's been running for a long time where the students ask, they call it, it's called the beacon. And they say, Hey, is the, are the beacon, is the beacon lit? Charlie, when they say like, is the beacon lit? What's that a reference to? Do you know? The, the two towers. Uh, the, actually the first, the first mention is in return of the King Yeah, um, in, yep. in the movies. It, uh, it, it's a little displaced, yeah. but yeah, the beacons that the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The beacons are it's, it's to Gondor. And so anyways, I, I, I've tried to transition to saying, hey, the beacon's on and the students do not like it. They're like, you have to say the beacon is lit. So <laughs> two days ago, I get a message through Instagram from a student and she says, Mr. Stearns, I'm watching Lord of the Rings for the very first time. She's read the books. She's just watched them. And she says, I just got into the third one. And I now finally understand the beacons are lit. I didn't realize that was a Lord of the Rings joke this whole time. So nice. I feel like that was a, that was a funny well, little development. It is, so it's if not your name rhymes with Aitlin Odd Iguez, you know, then congratulations <laughs> on making your life better and knowing that joke now. <laughs> so that's fair because the beacons aren't a pronounced part of the book. They become... Yeah, no. <clears throat> They're, they're more dramatized in the movie to create yeah. this tension. But yep. when, when Gandalf comes riding into um, Gondor or when he's on his way to Minas Tirith in the third book, mm -hmm. they're just, the, the beacons are already lit. It's like a passing comment yeah. yep. that you see the beacons. And so we don't need to talk about it now because we could talk too long, but Jackson is, I, I, as we're reading through, we're almost through the fellowship. I guess this counts as book and business. Me and the kids are almost through the fellowship. And uh, I really think Jackson tried to do as good as he could 
with these with these for the movies. The Hobbit's a totally different story, but I do think he tried to do a good job. All right. So for my books and business, though, everybody, um, this week I'm going to talk about a podcast I've listened to. Um, again, life's pretty crazy. I'm having a hard time pulling reading time into my life, but I'm trying to make the most use I can as I'm driving around and doing stuff. So when we were in Iowa City last week for treatment, um, I'm running here and there doing various errands, and I started listening to a three-part podcast series put out by Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Our friends up north, Tim and I are graduates of Central. We have our THMs there. And the podcast is hosted by Jared Matthew. And then the the presenter this time was Brett Williams. He's the provost. And I had, I don't know, a pile of classes with Brett Williams. But his topic he covers in this three-part series is gender dysphoria. And so I've, I don't feel like I'm in, I feel like I'm pretty up to date on homosexuality and LGBTQ plus movement. I mean, I do apologetics in Western Civ. I feel like I'm kind of up to date on that stuff. <clears throat> but he started off by telling a story that he, he was a pastor for like a decade before he became the provost. And he said he had to deal with this a lot. I think he's dealt with it and maybe in his family too, um, like extended family. And so he's had some, he's been studying this for about 15 years. He said he's been reading every book he can on the topic. Um, but he said one example is a, a guy came into his church one day, he, uh, one of his churchmen, and said, Pastor, I got to talk to you. And he sat down and he says, Hey, I, just, I need to talk to you because um, I'm telling you on this, but I'm, I'm homosexual. And Brett said, No, you're not. And I, I did not expect this at the beginning. Really? Wow. And the guy said, No, no, I am. I am. And he tells the story at the beginning of the first episode. Brett says, no, I, I don't know. You're not that you're not a homosexual. And he says, no, you don't understand. I have been attracted to men. I have these strong attractions to men right now. I'm a homosexual. And he says, no, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I, I believe you that you have these strong attractions. You're not a homosexual though. And he says, no, you don't understand. I've had these since I was like four. And he says, I don't doubt that. I totally believe you. I'm not doubting that at all, but you're not a homosexual. I'm like totally, hey, where's he going with this? <clears throat> so here's here's the here's why I would recommend this three-part series. If you um if you have someone in your life who has been affected by this and you haven't read anything on it in a while, this would be a great resource for you. It might be a good resource to hand them. I don't know. I, I don't know that I would it's not a, gonna be against them. But I would just say that I think it might help you to understand the situation. So he's going to make over a three-part series <clears throat> a really good historical study. He's going to give a really good historical study on the issue and the topic of homosexuality. So I'm going to give you a couple of highlights for my books and business because I think this is really helpful. But I would strongly recommend all of our Thinklings listeners to go over in your in your podcast app to the Central Baptist Theological Seminary podcast and look up their three-part series on gender dysphoria. All right, number one. He says, if you look back historically, the term homosexual is not used until about, I think he, I think that one's about 100 and 175, 100, 125 years ago. He says, if you think of the term gender, that's not even used until the 60s. It doesn't get coined until the 60s. <clears throat> now, these are terms that are floating in our culture right now that are just stock and trade. Like it's the norm. Um, but he says the problem with homosexuality is that it's actually describing a behavior 
But what they've done is they've transitioned it to an identity. Now, he does reference Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which Tim has read and recommended. I've read Carl's light version, Strange New World, and I would strongly recommend that. But Brett makes the point that that term was never never in use for a long time. He says, but if you go all the way back to Bible times, the, the same behaviors that you're seeing today in the LGBT movement are present in culture. So those are not new. The behaviors are not new. But he says that the term is, so he even does this historical study of the island of Crete. He says there's even transvestitism, like men dressing as women. Uh, there's really egregious sexual practices with young men who are becoming of age um, where they have to go into the forest and it's some really horrible things. But his point is that even in culture, he looks up the Roman and the Greek writers and biblical uh, the biblical text. And what you never find is a specific like term for homosexuality. What you find are lots of terms describing the behaviors, but no one ever says that person's not a man or that man's different. These are behaviors. That's what it is. And that really helped me. So I remember answering this question for a student over email about three years ago. Uh, there's an argument out there online. I need to find it again, where there's a group of homosexuals and, tran- and, and transgenders who are saying that the Bible doesn't actually use the term homosexual. And that's a wrong translation. I think it's the 1942 movement. And it's based on one of the texts of the Bible that's been translated, like the RSV maybe or something. And what they say is that in First Corinthians, I think it's First Corinthians, where it talks about um, you won't inherit the kingdom if you're either effeminate or a man abuser, I think, or man, something like that. <laughs> then you're you're not in the king of heaven. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to look up the word for homosexuality in Greek. And I was surprised that the word, if I remember correctly, this is like three years ago, I looked this up. It's just the word for man and the word for bed smashed together. And I remember thinking, well, that's weird. But it fit perfectly with what Williams was saying. This is a description of a behavior. It's not like a new category of people. They're still men. They're still women. But these are behaviors. So anyways, Brett does a really good historical study. He's bringing up uh, Michel Foucault, who is he's I mean, he's as liberal as it gets. Um, he's, He's bringing up all kinds of writers. And so I would just say, listener, if you have had questions about this or you'd like to know more about it at a, a, a pretty good level. Uh, this three-part series would be a great help to you. It'd be a great benefit and a blessing. It's not going to replace you studying scripture. It's not going to replace you doing some study on your own. And it's not going to replace you trying to figure out how with wisdom to approach anyone who you might know personally who's struggling with these things. But it would be a really great help to you. So anyways, I listened to that. And I mean, that was like, I'm driving around running errands in Iowa City. You know, I'm getting ready in the morning to go back to the hospital to see Robin. And uh, it was just a really helpful series. So anyways, that's my books and business for the week. I thought it was a really, really good resource. Yeah, good friends of the Central Seminary podcast. And uh, they they have some good stuff over there. And we, you know, maybe we just need to collaborate with Jared them. has, Jared's emailed me. And we They've just haven't a had podcast. a time. Yeah, Jared wants we to have, have us podcast. on sometime. And we should, I mean... We've had Bowder on. Well, I don't know who Jared is, but uh, you know, let's get let's get that guy on the horn and let's figure something out. But... <laughs> light the anyway, beacon. Light the beacon. <laughs> anyway, the podcast Tim, beacon. <clears throat> Tim, let's talk about alcohol. 
again. Okay, so I've got three things that I want to add on to from last week. And then these guys have some things that they want to share as well. One concerns the preservation of grape juice. A lot of people, particular, uh, particularly critics that wine means grape juice, uh, claim that, well, they couldn't preserve the uh, the grape juice. It would have naturally become wine or something else. And Kalumala actually discusses this and uh, so I'm just going to read this section. Care should also be taken so that the must, when it has been pressed out, may last well, or at any rate, keep until it is sold. We will then next set forth how this ought to be brought about and by what, pres- preser- by what preservatives the process must be aided. Some people put must in leaden vessels and by boiling, reduce it by a quarter, others by a third. There's no doubt that anyone who boiled it down to one half would would be likely to make a better thick form of must and therefore more profitable for use, so much so that it can actually be used instead of must boiled down to one third to preserve the must produced from old vineyards. We regard as the best wine any kind which can keep without any preservative, nor should anything at all be mixed with it by which its natural savor would be obscured, for that wine is most excellent, which has given pleasure by its own natural quality. So the first thing to observe in this big long quote was that he calls must, he equates must and then the what's created from the must wine. And this is clearly referring to grape juice that's been boiled down. Other documents reveal that they could use salt to preserve the uh, grape juice. But again, the point that Klumla is making is that it's better if it doesn't have any of that stuff that you can just drink it plain. So that's number one. Number two, Isaiah one uh, refers to watered down alcoholic beverage. I'm just going to read that text uh, critics that water or that wine was watered down uh, refer to uh, Isaiah 122 in this text the um, children of Israel are rebelling again uh, verse 21 states how the faithful city has become a harlot it was full of justice uh, it was full of justice righteousness lodged in it but now murderers so the context is like whoa, it's like bad things are happening. Then verse 22 states, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. So the silver becoming dross, there's actually a lot of rare vocabulary here. So you can um, get a good Isaiah commentary, Wildberger. Uh, he discusses both of this verse quite well. Uh, the word for dross is uh, it's basically like slag. It's a mix of metal and uh, the the whole process and how they created this purification is supposed to create this beautiful thing, but because they're inept, uh, they make a mess and they ruin the silver, essentially. So that's what's going on with your silver becoming dross. What's supposed to be beautiful is made, um, it is destroyed because of your incompetence. That's kind of the idea of the first one. And then second, your wine is mixed with water. The word for wine there is not the word for wine. In fact, the word that's used there is only used two times in the entire Old Testament. And it's probably more, uh, it's still probably an alcoholic beverage, but we've they've found a similar word in Akkadian, and it's it's probably a specific type of a, of a beer. And um, so it would be like an alcoholic type of a beverage. But the point that that that's being 
relayed here is that what is supposed to be this, okay, is maliciously being modified so that it's a lesser something. Okay, so you have the beer and you, you'd, you'd think that you're purchasing a beer and it's not. It ends up being, it's like this, I don't know, like watered down um, uh, beverage. Everybody like, but, but that's what they always did. You made the comment that they watered down wine all the time in the previous episode. I'm like, yeah, they did. Okay, I'm not entirely sure on the whole beer component if they watered down the beer, but um, it would have been some kind of a barley or wheat alcoholic beverage. And its alcoholic content, though, would still be very different than the alcoholic content of our day. The purpose of, of this text is that they are um, intentionally and maliciously modifying something and then selling it off as like the real thing. I mean, they're, they're, they're just, the whole point of this passage is justice. And you have hmm. the, the inept people in the first line, and then you have malicious people in the second line. And what, what does this do collectively is creating uh, a society that that's junk. Hmm. Okay. So that's the point of Isaiah one twenty two. And the word is not wine. It has nothing to do with wine. It would, it's uh it would be closer to beer. But again, it's not the normal word for beer. There's been a lot of discussion. What exactly is this? And uh, it was probably a specific kind of Assyrian uh, alcoholic, uh, well, beer. Okay. So that's number two. Probably when, uh, when we were probably kombucha. <laughs> when we were on our trip, um, getting back to the whole, uh, um, drinking water issue, we went to, um, we visited like a Confederate, well, not Confederate, uh, uh, Continental Army camp. And they had the whole medicine people there. And they said, they were talking about dysentery. And I didn't even know what dysentery really was. Mm. But es essentially, mm. it's nasty stuff. And yeah. it's caused by drinking bad water. Mm -hmm. uh, and my wife and I are actually reading a book. Uh, well, she's reading it more than me, but I, she read some of it to me. Um, Marriage to a Difficult Man, the story of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Edwards, Susan Edwards. I can't remember her name exactly, but anyway, his wife. And uh, the uh, they talk about how they don't drink water. Uh, you know, really, we need to try to get ourselves back into that culture. The water was dirty and it made them sick and they died from it. And so specifically with Jonathan Edwards and his wife, they actually did not drink a lot of water because of the impurities and the, the problems. So I thought, I thought that was an interesting component of the entire conversation. Beer was a regular beverage. That alcoholic content would have been much lower than what you would see in the grocery store. And it was a safe beverage to drink. So they gave it to their kids. Everybody drank that stuff. Okay, and then uh, the last thing that I had was the communion table. So at the communion table, what I talked about on on episode 129, why is Easter when it is, I talked about the correlation of the communion table. It never says that it's wine at the communion table in the Bible. It's always the fruit of the vine, um, and the word wine, oinos, is never used. And I believe that's intentional because... The, the grape juice, the juice of the communion table is supposed to symbolize uh, blood. And 
with that correlation to blood. I mean, nobody disagrees about that. It obviously refers to blood, but the treading of the wine press is what produces uh, grape juice, and the treading of the wine press is the symbol of what God Jesus is going to do when He comes back, where people's blood mm -hmm. is all over the place. The point of the correspondence is not alcoholic wine. It would have been grape juice. I believe that grape juice is actually a more fitting um, symbol for the communion table. And if you went back in the ancients, they would have just said the word wine with varying levels of alcoholic content and not really making a big distinction between those. Uh, so this whole conversation about the communion table, um, I think we need to rethink. So, boom, there I go. I'm done again. Well done. Tag so, Tag on it. Uh, so I think Charlie and I, we have a couple of thoughts that we want to share this time. And so I'll go ahead and start with mine. So growing up, I had, uh, I was public schooled and I had friends who would go out and drink <clears throat> and I never really had an attraction to it. I never had a desire, I had a real fear of it um, because I was told that with my personality, I would probably get addicted to it. And I, I would use a different word today, but I would say that I do think um, it could have easily become an enslaving idol if I had gotten into it. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, delight and whatnot and getting a little tipsy, I'm sure. And so I, I, I just, because of that, I avoided it. Not, I don't think I was wholly per se. I think I was just very, didn't want to like wreck things in my life. I'm thankful for that caution though, because it did spare me from a lot of uh, big problems. Uh, there, you know, there was, um, a friend of, well, sort of a friend of mine, I'd played baseball with him and uh, he had gone to a party. I think this is our junior year. I want to say end of the junior year. <clears throat> and uh, he had a Kawasaki Ninja, really, really fast motorcycle. And so he left the party drunk and his buddy was with him. And uh, he went like 85 down a 25 street and T-boned a van and died instantly. His buddy flew over the van and as he flew over the van, he clipped his shoulder and flew 60 yards or whatever, 60 feet landed and his whole arm was just being held on by like a bare strap of like muscle. That was it. And, uh, so there was a lot of like, like we sort of understood the severity of alcohol. So growing up, I had never heard your argument, Tim, that perhaps it was less alcoholic. The grape, the, the wine was less alcoholic or even just grape juice. I'd never heard that, but I was always trying to wrestle with like, what do you do with this? And it was very in vogue. Uh, to say it's okay to drink, just don't get drunk. And so the verse that everyone would point to is Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but rather be filled with the spirit. And so <clears throat> the metaphor there in that text is if you fill yourself with wine, the thing that's controlling you is the alcohol. So then what you should be doing is allowing yourself to be controlled by the spirit. And it even says in there that when you get drunk, it leads to something and it's debauchery or dissipation. It's essentially like, um, like really wicked living. And so I, thinking about that growing up, I, I think that was sort of the big warning that I took that even if someone were to make the argument that it's okay, man, there's a big risk here. So I was kind of comfortable with that. Um, but then one day, I can't remember when in my education, uh, Dr. Doug Brown was making 
a comment about this in class. I, th- I don't even think it was the main point of class. And he just said something. Someone said, yeah, you shouldn't be drunk. And he's like, yeah. The, and what, what's the beginning of what's drunkenness? What is that? And so I'm just going to, he, he made a comment and then I've just thought it out in my own head for a long time. So here's, here's my main, <clears throat> aside from Tim, your argument that it's perhaps, I think I'm persuaded that it's probably not as alcoholic and maybe not alcoholic at all. It's the sweetness of the grape juice. But even if you don't take that, um, here, here's the question. And I'll ask you guys today, today, um, someone gets pulled over and they've been drinking. Uh, why, what bad things can happen to them? Uh, what can the officer give them? And like, what might be a situation that they would encounter? Like, Hey, you've been drinking officer pulls you up or what happens? Well, he, he could give you a high five. Probably not. He could probably, probably not. Probably give you a breathalyzer <laughs> test. Yeah. And so Charlie, how's a breathalyzer work? Do you know? I What's have it measure? never, it measures your blood alcohol content. Okay, I have yeah, okay. never been subjected to a breathalyzer test, so I don't personally know. Okay. So I've never subjected my, I've never been subjected to a test by an officer, but I have used breathalyzers multiple times. So I used to, <laughs> I know this is exciting, isn't it? <laughs> so I used to work at a car dealership and I worked in the service department where they fixed the cars. And every now and then you'd have someone come in to get their car repaired and they'd say, oh, by the way, I have a breathalyzer attached. So if you if you drink and drive too many times and get certain like driving under the influence uh, convictions, then sometimes you go to prison, sometimes you lose your license, but sometimes the court requires that you have a breathalyzer installed in your vehicle. And so then to start your car, you have to pull the vehicle up and blow a zero on the blood alcohol scale. So when they would bring it in, the mechanic would have to blow into it to get the car to start. And if you'd had any alcohol, it wouldn't work. So they always would give us an extra tip for us. And so I've used a breathalyzer and it is shockingly hard to blow into those things. You really have to blow pretty forcefully. So here's the thing though. So I always thought, so does anyone know the legal limit in Iowa right now? I can't remember if it's 0.1 or 0.08. It's it's ten percent of your blood, or maybe just a hair under ten percent of your blood becomes alcohol. Um, there's some sort of a measurement. Now, so, so I understand it. You could be buzzed, like a little bit buzzing, and not blow that level, and you wouldn't be considered drunk, and so the officer wouldn't arrest you or take you to prison or anything. What occurred to me, and this is largely from teaching introduction to Bible study and thinking about the original readers and how they would have taken a text. If you told a first century Christian not to be drunk and they said, okay, and then you said, hey, how do you know when someone's drunk? What do you guys think a person in the Bible times would say? How do you think they would answer that question? What do you think? How do they know if someone's drunk? In their behavior. Okay. Like what, what might they do? They're just acting like a, a specific way. That's not, <clears throat> that's not, I don't want to say normal, but at least not, not, yeah, not normal, not filled with the spirit. Ephesians okay. five. Okay. All right. So I think you could look at all kinds of passages that talk about like you get punched and you don't feel it like that sort of thing. 
So you go for like the really extreme ones. But I think you're right, Tim. I think this is what jumped out at me. And this is what Dr. Doug was trying to make a point at is what is the beginning of drunkenness? What's full drunkenness? Where's the end of drunkenness? Like, how do you know you're drunk? And for a first century Christian, the only thing you would have, because you don't have a blood alcohol content monitor, it's your behavior. So this started to get me to rethink the standard or the level of how do I know I'm drunk? So what if I'm buzzed and I'm starting to like get a little louder and I'm starting to act a little more aggressive and I don't, you know, I don't guard my tongue as much as normal. Would they think I'm drunk? See, I don't know the answer to that question. I'd, I'd have to go back in the first century and ask someone. But then here's one more thought. It occurred to me that <clears throat> the command there is to be under the control of the spirit. And the, the, the problem is that when you drink too much, you're, not, you're often under control of the alcohol. Well, how much control? Does that make sense? Like how much control are you under? All right, so here's a personal personal testimony time. I've never drank alcohol, but I'm a big coffee drinker. I love coffee. And so for a long time, when I started working at Faith especially, I would make an entire like 48-ounce thermos of fully caffeinated coffee, and I would just drink it all day long. And it didn't really affect me. Like I'm not like a caffeine doesn't affect me. I'm not that kind of guy. Uh, but sometimes I would come home and I'd be chatting with my wife, and uh, <clears throat> she'd not be very talkative. And I wonder why she's not so talkative and like an hour would go by and then she would look at me and say, Andy, have you had any caffeine today? I'm like, no, I mean, I had some coffee. Oh no, I did have another coffee. Oh yeah. And then I went out to lunch with dad and I had a diet Coke and, and I would add up how much caffeine I'd have. And actually it was quite a bit. And so she started to help me to see that when I drink a lot of caffeine, I don't shut up and I talk really fast. Like I'm and then I get really excitable and I start to speak and say things that I probably wouldn't if I wasn't so excitable at the moment. So here's my question. Is that okay? According to Ephesians 5.18, what do you guys think? Do you think, I mean, it's not the same thing as being drunk, but is that okay? It's, it's similar. How is it similar? I agree with you. Like in what way is it similar, Charlie? Spell it out for us. It is. It is similar. It, I would also say it's it's different. Uh, yeah, but I would say it's different. It's it's, it's similar <laughs> in the sense that there's knowledge of yielding control over to something else. Mm -hmm. Where at least for you, you know, if I drink fifteen cups of coffee, yep, I will I will be affected by it. And yeah. So mm -hmm. there, there's there's that type of similarity, and there's not really a definitive line. It's like, well, yeah. how much, how mm -hmm. much caffeine is too much caffeine? And it's like, oh. well, I don't know. Like, yeah. what if, what if that guy's coffee over there is not as strong as this guy's coffee over here? And, you know, maybe two cups of coffee isn't equal anymore. Yeah. You know, which is similar to Tim's discussion of the uh, alcoholic content is very different amongst different drinks. So that's, yep. that's what I'm thinking. Okay. I, Do you want to add anything to him? <clears throat> think it well the we we talk about how trials we've talked multiple times about how trials mm -hmm. um um reveal who we are and so you know various influences 
might affect us, uh, whether they are things that we're intaking into our body or even the circumstances around us. And so, um, you know, are you in control of your faculties? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, are you in control of your mouth? And I would mm-hmm. think, you know, because of the way that alcohol works and because of the way that caffeine works, I would think I would be still in control of my mouth, regardless of how much yep. caffeine I drink. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. And so even if the caffeine is making that harder, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that, that might be one thing. Um, but, but at the same time, well, shut up, you know, or get control of yourself <laughs> yeah. or you see what I mean? Yes. So, mm-hmm. Whereas the way that alcohol works, um, similarly one could, I think in the ancient world, there was a little bit of alcohol in it and wine gladdening the heart of man. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it talks about in that way, um, where a little bit, uh, would not necessarily be like, I, I'm out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, which for them would have been a lot of it because of it being watered down and not mm-hmm. as high of an alcohol content, but still, um, it would be a time of joy and happiness and, and it could, it could help accentuate that. So that's why I think there okay. would be, a, there would be like a difference there. Uh, the point that, that I think it, it's really driving at is, am I in control of my body? Mm-hmm. And with alcohol, at some point you're not, you're not in control. Yep anymore uh, and so with caffeine i don't think that ever could really happen i would think you should be able to control yourself regardless anyway those are just my initial thoughts so no that's very helpful so that that's part of what helped me to think this through um now personally i don't i have a limit on how much caffeine i drink every day it's not a law it's a grace limit. So I, if I drink a little extra caffeine, I'm not concerned. Um, but there are times where I just get really excited about what's going to happen. Like we, you know, sometimes we go over to my family's house, <clears throat> my, my parents, and we'll be going to grill for the day or something. I'll get all excited and we're going to play games and I'll just be out of control sometimes. And, and that's a self-control issue, but that doesn't mean I don't go over to grandma and grandpa's. It makes sense. My kids, my parents. So I would say that here's where another issue pops up and it's sort of the, what is the risk that you're risking and how sure are you of what you're doing? And I do think you need to have a clean conscience before the Lord, no matter what you do. So if there's a question about something until you have the question sorted out, scripture would say you need to hold off until your conscience is clear before the Lord. So for me, I try to limit myself how much caffeine I drink every day. When I don't do that, there's a number of negative consequences. Number one, I sometimes get dehydrated very easily and I get headaches. And so that's a problem. Then I don't sleep well. Then I can't lead the family well. I can't do my job well. I have to, you know, I have to like sleep it off or drink a ton of water or whatever. But number two, if I'm getting erratic in my behavior, even with caffeine though, it's just probably talk. I'm talking too much, you know, and I'm like maybe saying things that are a little over the line kind of a, does that make sense? But let's compare that to alcohol now. See, I don't think anyone's ever drank so much coffee that they got in a car wreck or knocked up a girl. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But like, it's trivially easy to drink a little too much alcohol to where you make a huge life altering decision that is going to really wreck a lot of people's lives, not just your own. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, the caution here 
is that what what is it that I'm what I what is it about alcohol that I, I'm gonna be gaining and be blessed by? Well, maybe it's enjoyable, maybe it's pleasure, maybe it's fun, maybe it's delighting. But then what's the trade-off? What's the risk that I'm risking and is it worth it? Well, if I was risking um causing physical harm or um life harm to another human being. I hope that the reason I'm doing that is because I'm trying to save a life or I'm trying to defend my family or something like that. But how bad would it be to risk one of those things just because I want to have some fun and be happy for a little while? That seems like a really poor decision and not strategically wise. It doesn't seem to line up with the wisdom in the book of Proverbs. So for me, not having access to your argument about wine not being as alcoholic, Tim, that's sort of where I landed with this command from Ephesians 5.18, but I do think the command applies to other things. So <clears throat> personally, it's not the same, though. I don't want to make an argument that it's the same, but when I think about caffeine, I should be wise and be careful with it. Now, I don't, Charlie, you can jump in later if you want, but I know you've been very careful with caffeine recently because you're trying to guard sleep. I've also experienced that. I've done a diet a couple of times where I can't have any caffeine after noon. And I hate it because I love afternoon coffee. But you know what happens every single time? I sleep phenomenal and my quality of life is better. I think I actually lose weight because you, you actually do a lot of weight loss stuff when you sleep and I sleep more. Um, I fall asleep quicker. I sleep deeper. It's just way healthier. But I really like my afternoon coffee. Now, I think that's a managing and a stewardship issue. But I will say that if you're going to say it's okay to drink as long as you don't get drunk, okay. I think you need to deal with Tim's argument, which I'm very persuaded by. But even then, what are you risking? And then here's the final thought. Here's the last thing that I wanted to share. If what is it you're trying to do <clears throat> with alcohol? If you, you, I'm just going to drink it, but I'm not going to get drunk. Well, it's not to hydrate. It's not to purify water. This is just an enjoyable thing to drink. It's like me and coffee, you know, enjoyable thing to drink. And so you're going to have a party, you're going to have some friends over, you're going to play some games, have a good time. You want some good tasting food, you're maybe going to grill, order pizza, something like that. And then you want something nice to drink with it. It's hard in 2023 when there's a gas station down the road that has 55 <clears throat> options at the fountain and a whole bunch in the cooler. And none of those sweet, tasty drinks have any alcohol in it. It's really hard to justify the fact that you've got to go all the way to the alcohol section to have something that's delightful, especially Tim with your historical argument that really it's the sweetness of the alcohol or the wine, excuse me, the sweetness of the grape juice that would have been so delightful. I think of like when you get a smoothie or you go to tropical smoothie cafe or something that that'd be like something similar. So just personally for me, I haven't been able to justify the risk and I haven't been able to justify it with so many other tasty options. If the grid goes down in America, okay, the whole globe goes down, there's no power, there's no water, there's no electricity, we're all hiding out in the mountains, and we've got to make moonshine to purify water by putting like a tablespoon in a big bucket, okay, like I'm not losing any sleep over that because we're using it for water purification, but I, I don't think I, personally, this is me, I'm not trying to, listener, you got to sort this out yourself, but personally, I don't think I could think, hey, let's pour a couple of glasses and have a good time. I, I don't personally think I could see that according to what the art rec, the, the, the uh, exhortations are in scripture. So that was what mm -hmm. I wanted to share. Charlie, 
or Tim, if you got thoughts on that or Charlie, what, what are your thoughts you want to share? Tim, you have uh, anything? So, you know, just following up, I didn't know a lot of this stuff until more, until recently. My growing up was very similar to yours is like, there's a lot of risks associated with this substance and behavior. So why, why, why get into mm-hmm. it? And personally, yeah. like my first exposure to even beer was we used to walk around along the streets and pick up cans and then go yeah. to you know, do them <laughs> for money yep. uh, as kids. And I mean, one time I came across one that was full of beer and uh, I mean, I think it was worth five cents guys. I mean, I popped the thing and dumped it out and took it yep. to the uh, redemption <laughs> center and, uh, and it splashed on my clothes I didn't realize it, but when I was dumping it out, it was like splashing on my clothes. And then I went to my grandma's because that's where we were at at the time. And they kicked me out of the house because I stunk. So oh. there was so there was that component of it too, where for me, it just didn't smell good. Everything associated with it was not desirable. And it just seemed like something that was full of danger. So why indulge in and get involved in it? So, so my upbringing was very similar. All right. I had a story. I had to sort cans at the grocery store in high school Um, and it was the same thing. They were just, it was stinky. That's all. Yeah. It does have a distinct aroma and, uh, you know, pun intended, but anyway, so I had a very different interaction growing up with it. And I would just say, uh, when we get into issues of conscience, we must remember that a conscience can be correct or incorrect. Right. A conscience can be seared. So it is really not a valid argument to justify or to condemn to say, my conscience is okay with it. Because my conscience could be okay with many things it should not be okay with. And my conscience could also be hindered or disturbed by things it should not be hindered or disturbed by. And that is, I think, a a reminder for us that just because someone's conscience is or isn't okay with something, that does not determine its morality, its efficacy, you know, its practicality. So I think that, and, and there are passages that speak to those issues in the Bible, but for the most part, we live in a culture that has desensitized alcohol. So we do not live in a culture that has a moral conscience of anything wrong in regard to drinking. It is common. It's even in the Midwest, it's understood that most teenagers are going to drink beer underage. And -hmm. in fact, that's okay. There's a popular country song that's out right now. And, uh, you know, if you know a little bit more about Charlie uh, growing up in Southern Iowa, you know. Country music has a, a nostalgic feel to me, and I recognize its lower art form and its its poor taste. But there are some, you know, portions of country music that I do enjoy, and I have to be careful with that. But there is a popular country song that's out right now, and it has a line to the effect that I wish, uh, I wish teens drinking on the back roads would never get caught. Oh, you know, hmm. and. That is the cultural feeling towards alcohol, certainly in the Midwest of the United States. And I'm to understand it's even worse in other countries where alcohol is not a problem at all. 
you know, the, the, the drinking age is much lower in other places in the world. And, uh, you know, we understand that those decisions are not made in a vacuum, that their decision on legal drinking age is connected to their moral and ethical compass. And so maybe not directly affected, but it, they are connected, you know. Um, all that to say, I grew up and it was it was okay. I was around it all the time. Uh, I mentioned on the previous podcast that I had I partaken of alcohol, uh, I think as early as maybe 14 years old, uh, somewhere in that ballpark or maybe even younger. And uh, I shared on the previous podcast that I have in fact been drunk to the point of where you are completely out of control. And, uh, and I uh, had to bear the problems of that the next morning. And uh, that alone, I don't understand the practicality of why people uh, drink. But all that to say, uh, I think that there's this phenomena where newer Christians that come out of the culture realize things about the culture that maybe mm -hmm. second generation or third generation or beyond Christians don't realize because they've been trained differently in what their conscience is okay with and what it's not okay with. And I have noticed first generation Christians, and this is anecdotal evidence, I can't prove an argument with it, but I have noticed first generation Christians in this cultural context upon getting saved immediately distancing themselves, not just from alcohol, but from other substances. Mm. Yep. Uh, the most profound of these examples to me is my father. He grew up in Southern Iowa on a farm and he drank his entire life. He got saved when he was 63 and he instantly, without any prompting, had a, had a red flag. Like, wait, hold on. <laughs> These seem different. These two ideas seem contrary. His conscience uh, started having a, an issue that had never had an issue before. And that, that involved something else that he loved to do, which was smoking his pipe. <laughs> and uh, it was very common as we would go out fishing that he would light up a cigar, you know, and he always told us, you know, it keeps the bugs away. I don't really know if that was the reason he was doing it, but. Um, you know, he he instantly recognized some discrepancy there as a new believer. And uh, that really came to a T on a, a trip that we took to Canada. And uh, a little bit of uh, Carter family history, my, my dad, before he met my mom, for a span of about maybe 15 years or so, every summer after the crops had been planted, he would drive up to Canada into Ontario, and he was a fishing guide at Lumberjack Lodge on Sturgeon Lake in Ontario. And uh, the owners of that uh, lodge had a son about the same age as my dad. And my dad had some buddies from here in Iowa that would also go up. And they did two things all summer. They would fish. And they would drink. Mm -hmm. And my dad even joked to me at one point on this little cabin that they would stay at, that they would stack up the cases of Labatt Blue beer in Canada to the point where you couldn't see out the windows. Hmm. And 
so then fast forward from when my dad is 20, 25, you know, driving up to Canada, just drinking all the time, incessant. And then now he's 65, 66, and he and I are going to Canada on a fishing trip. And we actually went to Lumberjack Lodge. We stayed in the exact location that my dad stayed all those summers. Oh, that's cool. And and without knowing it, that was the last summer of my dad's life. But hmm. he on the way up was like, you know, I really, Charlie, I I really want to buy just one, just one drink. One one bottle of Labatt Blue up in Canada. And that prompted a conversation between my dad and I. And I asked him a very similar question to what you raised, Andy. Well, what's the reason for it, Dad? Mm. I'm not going to tell you it's wrong. But can you give me a good reason for it? And I'm going to pause the story there. And then I want to get to the point that I would like to discuss that I feel this comes up in this discussion. When Christians start to come up with good reasons to drink alcohol, I very commonly have heard the argument that it becomes evangelistic. And that mm. is a good reason to, to do it as well. I can, I get to have conversations with people and I get to evangelize people that I wouldn't build relationships with normally, you know, in these different settings. And, uh, you know, it's, it's removing a barrier between me and other people who are not saved. And I don't think we have time to really get into the full discussion, but that's something I've thought through a lot over the last 10 years or so. And having friends, having uh, many opportunities like that, you know, where you, you go to a restaurant in uh, modern day and pretty much every restaurant sells alcohol you know most sit down restaurants will have it if you ask for it you can go to poncheros and they have you know two options for beer they have good beer and bad beer i think that's kind of funny on the menu uh, they're the same price but uh so it's it's everywhere and so like well if i can i go to eat at poncheros if my buddies are drinking a beer that they buy at poncheros can i can i go to chili's and sit down and you know my buddy orders a beer and am i okay with that you know and I've been in that scenario dozens and dozens and dozens of time times in different settings, guys that like board games, guys that like sports, uh, they're not all saved individuals. And there's many times I've been in situations like that. And I think an argument can be made. Yeah, that's totally fine. It's evangelistic. And just to clarify, I have not drank with those people, but so, and a common passage that people go to in that discussion is 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul discusses becoming all things to all people. And so, you know, re removing a cultural boundary or maybe an issue of conscience to help you evangelize someone. And, and to read those verses here, this is Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became like one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people 
that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. He goes on to talk about running the race in such a way that you might win. And I actually spoke in chapel about this years ago at Faith, just to remind us that, you know, we, we like to talk about eternal, you know, rewards, but the prize that Paul's talking about is people. Like you live your life a certain way to win people. And so you could certainly see at a at a first glance of those verses, like I become all things to all people. So why not drink to win those who drink? I don't know if that's a fair question or if I've set the table up well. And I just like to reference, you know, I, I sat under uh, uh, Dr. Paul Hartog at Refresh here at Faith. This is probably five or six years ago now, and he talked about this idea. And uh, I believe uh, Tim sent me the link. He talked about a similar idea up at uh, Central Seminary in 2018. And I think we're going to put the link to that page in uh, our show notes, but Christianity and Culture in the Roman Empire. And what he, Dr. Paul, points out as you walk through this passage is that Paul's example of becoming all things to all people is never in the sense of claiming a right. It's never, I'm going to do something that people think I shouldn't do. It's always, I'm going to give something up for the sake of winning those other people. And the examples within the context of 1 Corinthians are that Paul did not assume his right to be paid as an apostle. And so I'm willing to give up the right to be paid as an apostle, as a pastor, to, to reach these people. He mentions taking a believing wife. Like, I'm going to give up the right or privilege, however you look at it, uh, of having a wife alongside of me in ministry because that's going to help me minister and reach these people. And in this unique context, they're talking about this syncretism of meat offered to idols. And there's this discussion of like, well, should you eat the meat offered to idols? Should you not? And, uh, and th 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 Paul makes statements like, you know, if, if it causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, which I've actually preached on that passage. And I think that's hilarious to me, like someone being willing to give up meat. And obviously it's a hyperbolic argument, but if that causes this guy to stumble, I'll never eat a steak again. I'll never kill another wild turkey. You know, and uh, we, we as like Christians with like our, or excuse me, Americans with our freedoms, we like to cling to them like gun rights and, you know, uh, free speech. And those are great things, but I don't get the sense that Paul would be hiding guns under his bed if the government told him to give them up. I, I don't know. I just don't think that's a hill he would have died on uh, for the sake of winning some. So now you get to the question of alcohol. And is that a right that is worth dying over? Like to, to really hold on to? And I think in Paul's context here, it's it's more so about what are you willing to give up to rich people not what are you willing to hold on to to win people. So I'm not sure if if 1 Corinthians 9 is is really in favor of an argument like 
do it because it helps you win them. Uh, I think to make it a little bit more appropriate with what's being said, it would be maybe you ought to consider giving it up for the sake of winning them. And I'd be interested to hear what you guys think on the passage. That is my opinion on it. Um, and so then I'd like to return then just to cap that off. And, you know, you think about those first Corinthians nine questions, like what are you willing to give up to help you win someone? I'll go back to my dad. So when we're up in Canada, all we're doing is fishing. And he's wanting to take a drink. He's wanting to take a drink. And he's like, and he even gets to the point where he's like, you know, we're up here on the lake. No one will ever know about it. And I thought it was interesting that he was a little worried or at least emboldened by the idea that no one back home would know about it. And so I asked him a question, why is it appealing to do it in a setting where nobody knows about it? And he started getting the wheels turning on that. And uh, this, by the way, this is not one particular conversation. This is, we're in a cabin for like 10 days on a lake. Okay. So there's many conversations where we're talking about this. And it eventually comes to the idea that, well, I, I wouldn't want people to know about it because I'm a Christian. But if I did it here, they wouldn't know. And so his his concern was about his testimony of, you know, he had given it up when he got saved because his conscience instantly had that tension. And I think that that affection towards it was uh, encouraged within the ministry he was at, what I think was positive. And he felt that tension, but then he thought the release of that was, well, here, no one would know. And and so we started having a conversation about, well, how important is it to you to maintain that conscience, that testimony of, of, of what God has done in your life? And we when we drove home, and I, I will just say he he decided, you know what? It's not worth it. There isn't a good reason for me to do this, even though I want to. Like, because what about my unsaved friends back home who I've tried to share Christ with? What would they look at this? How would they look at this? And his his mindset changed from not, you know, like he knew it's okay. I can do it. No one would know. His mind mindset changed to like, why do I want it so bad? And it's actually very similar to what Andy was talking about earlier. It became like, am I willing to to risk this for the sake of my testimony? Like, I think, and and I think his conclusion in the matter was, I would like to be able to tell people that once I got saved. I never needed to go back to that. I never did go back to that. Um, and so uh, I guess that that's as as Tim was talking about it, I I have in the backdrop of my mind uh, a 65-year-old man who drank his whole life, who gave his life to Christ, instantly recognized that maybe there's some discord between the culture he grew up with and the culture he was now experiencing in the church. And when he was faced with that opportunity, 
uh, and with that idea of, you know, is it okay to drink, you know, um, and then with the idea I brought into the conversation of is drinking a means of evangelism, his conclusion was this actually might hinder my evangelism, not help it. And uh, I was incredibly proud of him as his pastor and as his son that he came to that conclusion. I tried not to push him very hard on it. Um, but I think that would be a really a really worthy thing to think through is, is am I willing to, you know, we, we can let the moral discussion go to the wayside, even though we each have particular views on that. But are you willing to give something up like that to maintain a testimony uh, before the Lord and and other people in our culture that view alcohol very differently? Uh, or uh, do you want to claim something as a right and maybe communicate that there's not a difference between you uh, as a Christian and the world around you? And uh, lest I be pegged as like a teetotaler and, you know, like some irrelevant, you know, fundy. Uh, John Piper makes this exact same argument in an article he wrote in 1996 um, that, uh, you know, there's a balance here between claiming a right and giving things up to separate from the world, uh, but also um, trying to build bridges into people's lives. And uh, I think alcohol is an area where we really need to think about what type of bridge that does build to the people around us. So I don't know. I don't know if that's fair um, or equitable. Most of that is anecdotal, um, but I, I do think First Corinthians nine presents us with the thought of what are you willing to give up to reach someone, not what are you willing to claim uh, to reach someone. I don't know. What are you, what are you guys thoughts on that? I don't know. Am I being fair? I mean, I think so. I think I like. I, I wrote down, I was taking notes as you were speaking, and I thought it was interesting that both examples you gave that Paul gives is giving up a good thing. Like, it's totally good to have a wife. It's totally good to eat meat. Um, <clears throat> but he's willing to give those things up. And I just thought to myself, that's, that is a, a good example. And uh, so I think that, that's, worth, that's worth considering. I, um, you also mentioned how your dad, like he got saved and like instantly. He's like, I got, there's a, there's an incongruity here. We hear that a lot. Um, President Tilton in his church up in Canada, he had a lot of first generation Christians and he's been on record to say this multiple times. I don't, he says, I, I don't think he's, he, he had to tell any of them to stop drinking. And this is like a drinking crowd. They just knew like, oh, I got to quit. Um, or for that matter, they also instantly knew they need to not be sleeping together until they're married. Um, but I would say that the Christians I know, it falls in line with what you said earlier, Charlie, about first gen and second gen. Um, the, the first generation Christians who, who felt the effects of alcohol and lived that life, they get saved and there's no question. Why would you do? You got to give this up. This is, this is bad. Um, but I do think it's the, the generation that hasn't seen it up close. And I, I would be someone who didn't, I've never seen it up close. Um, but I know someone very well. Um, a close friend of mine who they did the party scene in high school and, and they, as a believer, but then when they turned their life around, it was like, no question that's, and now there's, uh, when I talked to this person today about it, there's, it, it's, it's, there's like no, 
patient, not patience. There's no just ability to see any other view. Like, why would you? And it's not that they can't consider it. It's just after seeing it all, like, look at what, look at what goes along with this. Look what happens with this. There's, there's, no, there's not a good, like you said, there's not a good reason to do this. And there's so many bad reasons. So I, I thought that was, I thought that was good and very helpful to think about that. Tim, any other yeah, thoughts? Not really. Um, I would encourage the listener to listen to Dr. Paul's. It's actually a video, but you could listen to it or watch it sure. when he presented on it. And um, it's shared a lot of the thoughts that you shared there. Uh, and and uh, yeah, I would encourage them to, to continue to pursue holiness, uh, forsake the world, and to live an upright life before your God. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.